You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome back to Islam, the Truth About the Religion at Peace with Dr. Serge Trukovic. I'm Stephen Heiner. Dr. Trukovic, thanks for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. We're going to jump right into the, our first episode after going through the origin in, in the zero episode of why you wrote this book and, and some of the reactions that you got. The first thing that we need to do is define our terms properly because most people who are not Islamic, and I would say even a fair number of those who do claim to be Islamic, don't necessarily know what these terms mean. So can you tell us uh, Quran, Sunnah, Hadith, Isnads, anything else that you want to discuss, what do these terms mean and how should we understand them? Uh. Unlike uh, the Christian scripture, which is uh, not regarded as the literal word of God, but an account written by man, uh, the Quran is regarded as literally the word of God that passed through his prophet Muhammad. And uh, that is the key difference, because... Uh, sometimes Westerners talk about uh, different, alleged, allegedly different varieties of Islam uh, based on uh, what they call interpretation of the Quran. But because it is to a faithful Muslim the literal word of God, uh, it cannot be interpreted. In fact, any attempt at uh, rational explanation or analysis, uh, let alone critical reading of the Quran, is uh, is a deadly sin. Uh, so what we are looking at is a qualitatively different approach to uh, the scripture than uh, compared to that of the Christians or for the, that matter the Jews who constantly analyze and argue and uh, uh, have different angles of uh, interpretation of the Torah or, uh, uh, or or the Bible. So what we are looking at is really uh, an immutable and eternal text, which is valid for all people and all times, which is perfect and which is immutable, which simply cannot be uh, either interpreted or altered in any way, let alone subjected to rationalistic interpretation. And uh, uh, from the earliest days, it was regarded not only as the final revelation, but also as totally authentic, untainted by any human intervention. Uh, and uh, the early caliphs who came after Muhammad declared that the book itself is eternal, like God Almighty, and uh, uh, even instituted death penalty for anyone claiming that uh, this word of Allah was created by man. So, to this very day, Orthodox uh, Islam uh, regards the Quran as uh, totally perfect and uh, uh, as early as uh, uh, the 640s, the second successor of, of Muhammad, Caliph Umar, 
said that anyone who claims that the Quran had been changed or altered or tainted in any way is deserving of death. Now, there are some uh, grammatical and linguistic inconsistencies in the Quran, including a few wrong cases, and uh, uh, Arabists are well aware of this. Uh, so the claim that uh, Angel Gabriel dictated it uh, from the very first uh, revelation in 610 in perfect Arabic is spurious. But nevertheless, uh, it is regarded to this day as uh, the paradigmatic case of uh, pure and uh, grammatically uh, perfect Arabic language. In fact, uh, some people get carried away with reciting the verses of the Quran and the, the uh, inflection and the, the melody of the text itself has an all, can create an almost trance-like quality. Uh, the surahs themselves are, oddly enough, ordered not in terms of uh, subject matter or indeed uh, the chronology when they were created, but by length. And uh, it is, one might say, a, a somewhat uh, arbitrary way to arrange the text. But nevertheless, uh, within the Quran, it is pretty well known which verses came at what time and in which location. Uh, so that initially uh, the verses are more uh, when Muhammad was still an unknown or uh, despised preacher in Mecca without substantial following, uh, the verses tend to be, shall we say, more conciliatory. Uh, they tend to warn of uh, uh, the judgment of God and to uh, implore men to be just and uh, uh, to repent their sins. Later on, when he becomes a warlord in Medina after the Hijra in July 622, when he moved with his small band of followers from Mecca to Medina, those verses became distinctly more harsh, and that's when we get such important uh, revelations uh, as Surah 9, verse 5, the verse of the sword, which effectively gives the infidel, the choice of uh, converting to Islam, accepting uh, the status of a second-class citizen under Islamic rule as a dhimmi, or else death. So, uh, and also it's interesting that sometimes uh, Muhammad uh, sounds conciliatory, but then adds a twist, which changes the meaning of the verse altogether. For instance, uh, to kill but one man, and I'm quoting from memory, is like killing the entire humanity unless it is in defense of the faith or unless it is to fight confusion in the, la in the land. And confusion in this sense is translated as, uh, uh, as the lack of faith. Uh, likewise, there is no compulsion in religion. Uh, but uh, later on, you have 
many verses that indicate that there is indeed compulsion. And uh, Muslim scholars have decided that uh, certain verses can be abrogated. In other words, that a verse that comes later takes precedence over an early one if there is even the possibility of a conflict of meaning. So, unlike the Christian faith uh, in God revealing himself through Christ, the Quran is not a revelation. Uh, it is a direct uh, and uh, allegedly literally uh, past commandment and communication of his law. So, uh, uh, the Muslim sees the Quran as uh, the perf perfected gospel, unlike the Christian who sees uh, the perfected gospel in Christ, the word incarnate. So what we are looking at is uh, the basis of rather intransigent uh, religion in which Allah's supreme and absolute sovereignty is so transcendent that uh, one has to obey his law unquestioningly and uh, without any sense of natural morality or rational analysis of one's action. Commandments and uh, uh, are to be obeyed literally, completely, and without questions being asked. One of the things that, that's interesting if you try to engage Muslims, or what I would say the, the sort of westernized uh, Muslims about discussions about the beliefs of Islam, and I refer to the Quran, and they said, well, have you read it in Arabic? I said, no, I, I, don't, I don't read Arabic. I said, well, then you don't really know what you're talking about. So this, this sort of dismissiveness that, that we hear when discussing this book, for example, my, my Koine Greek is not good enough to necessarily read the entire New Testament in Greek, but I still am able to, to read the Bible, this doesn't seem to, to bother Christians. Why, why is this used so much in referring to the, the Quran with, uh, with Arabic? Uh, because according to uh, Muhammad and his immediate successors and the ulema, the scholars ever since, uh, only uh, the Arabic Quran is the real thing and translations, translations are the renderings. Now, this is a, a purely legalistic point because the meaning of, of the Quran is quite clear in translation. Some, some translations are better than others, but uh, to claim that uh, one cannot penetrate the meaning of uh, the Quran without reading it in original Arabic is simply spurious. It's, it's not true. In other words, it expects one to al already accept a prior eye uh, a key tenet of Muslim faith, which is that only the Quran in Arabic is authentic and that everything else can at best have the status of uncertain rendering, uh, which is in itself an indication of the rejection of rational discourse, which is inherent to Islam. Well, we mentioned the Quran, Dr. Rifkovich, and I think that's the number one term that most non non-Muslims would know in referring to the, the scriptures, you could say, the, the holy books of this religion. Can you tell us more about other sources of, uh, of tradition or other, other holy books or texts that are used by Muslims? 
Well, uh, the very important source is uh, uh, the Sunnah, which is the verbally transmitted record of the teachings, uh, acts, and uh, sayings, or uh, implicit permissions or disapprovals of Muhammad, and the various reports uh, about his companions. And together with the Quran, the Sunnah is a key source of of the Sharia, of uh, both Islamic theology and Islamic law. Uh, the word itself literally means a path or a, a manner of life. And uh, uh, what we do not know, and of course the complete record of alleged uh, acts, uh, teachings, deeds, words, and sayings of Muhammad are recorded in the Hadith. Uh, it is, however, uncertain as to what extent uh, these uh, recorded uh, snippets are reliable, because very often uh, the string of uh, transmission, the Isnad, goes for generations and generations, and uh, it is entirely possible, as Islamic scholars warn us, that uh, some of them were adopted to suit the political needs of the moment in Damascus and later on Baghdad, and uh, it would be indeed very hard to believe that literally thousands of uh, these uh, uh, snippets have survived intact. Nevertheless, they are regarded by most Muslims, and especially those hadith that are uh, called salih, uh, reliable or uh, uh, firm, are uh, um, an important source of Islamic law because the Quran does not cover hundreds of situations in everyday life which are contained in uh, Sunnah and Hadith. In other words, because Islam is entirely nominalistic and uh, uh, one looks for a precedent in uh, the Sunnah in order to uh, draw uh, conclusions uh, by deduction uh, regarding uh, man's behavior and uh, uh, what is allowed, what is forbidden, what is desirable, what is not, and so on. Uh, it is actually an even more important source of uh, case law and precedent than, uh, than uh, the Quran itself, because it covers uh, many situations from uh, personal hygiene to the riding of camels to uh, the treatment of women, to seating arrangements in the mosque, and so on. Uh, to give you but one example, because there is no instance of a woman riding the camel in, uh, uh, in Hadith, uh, the Saudi ulema have concluded that by uh, analogy, uh, a woman is not to be allowed to drive a car in the kingdom. And uh, this ban is enforced to this very day. Well, I think that's a, a good def a series of definitions about the terms that you're going to quite regularly use as we progress in this series. 
So I think we can move on to discussing the man who's the source for most of these texts, and, and that's Muhammad. Before we talk about Muhammad, let's discuss the, the type of society that he was born into. Uh, Pre-Islamic Arabia is, uh, was in many ways a Hobbesian society of uh, warring tribes uh, without any form of supreme authority and uh, where one had to rely on the protection provided by one's clan and tribe as a form of extended family. And it is uh, an area inhospitable in uh, terms of climate and geography, and uh, uh, an area where in the city of Mecca there was an important pagan uh, sanctuary with uh, uh, many uh, statues and stones that were revered by uh, the Ar Arabian pantheon and uh, were given godlike names and uh, alleged qualities. Uh, the so-called Fertile Crescent from the Mediterranean and across Syria to Mesopotamia uh, was north of that area and uh, uh, Arabian caravans would regularly go from uh, the Red Sea ports in today's Oman and uh, on the coast of Saudi Arabia in Jeddah through Mecca and Medina to the Byzantine markets in uh, the Holy Land, in Jerusalem and the cities along uh, the Mediterranean coast. And uh, uh, Muhammad was born into a fairly prominent and uh, powerful tribe, the Quraysh, but uh, because he was orphaned at an early age, uh, he was uh, re regarded as something of an outcast, and uh, his uncle Abu Taleb, who was a successful businessman, uh, employed him as a camel driver in his commercial caravans to, to Palestine and, and to Syria. But effectively, he was marginalized in a society where power and money were the defining uh, tools of one's social standing. And later on, he became very bitter about the Meccan establishment. And uh, I think that uh, his uh, revelation and, uh, and the rejection which he encountered among the Meccans uh, was coupled with his already pre-existent sense of bitterness and rejection and uh, resulted in a great deal of animosity he felt towards his native city. But during these trips to Syria and Palestine, uh, he uh, apparently met many Christians and Jews and uh, acquired some knowledge of their religion and traditions, but uh, from uh, his obviously inaccurate and sometimes totally distorted interpretations of uh, uh, both Christian and Jewish faith that Muhammad provides in the Quran, it seems that uh, this outline uh, was rather rough and perhaps conveyed by some heterodox Christian sects, m members of, of some uh, uh, 
strains of Christianity that the Orthodox would regard as heretical. Uh, at the same time, uh, the fact that he was illiterate and that his understanding of Aramaic and, and Greek and uh, uh, Hebrew was rudimentary indicates that uh, even in a distorted form, uh, these uh, summaries of other faith teachings could have been additionally distorted. But uh, a very important moment for, for Muhammad was uh, the fact that he married uh, a wealthy widow by the name of Khadija, who was 15 years older than he. He was 25 and she was 40. And uh, uh, thus, all of a sudden, he became uh, financially stable. And uh, yet, even though uh, he could now aspire to become a more respected member of the society, he was uh, nevertheless, and, and he enjoyed some, some material comfort, uh, he was prone to periods of uh, solitude and contemplation. Uh, he would often wander in the hills around Mecca and the during the holy month of Ramadan, and Ramadan was a holy month even in pre-Islamic pagan Arabia, uh, he was known to spend days and even weeks in the caves uh, above uh, Mecca on Mount Hira. And that's where he claims that uh, one day after he came out of his meditation, he recognized a strange uh, luminous figure uh, that joined him in the cave as uh, the angel Gabriel, and that uh, this figure called him to prophecy, you are to be the messenger of God. And uh, uh, the earliest biography of Muhammad uh, describes this event in some detail, which actually is based on his own rendering of, of that experience, the angel allegedly uh, brought him a coverlet of brocade with some writing and asked him three times to read. And uh, uh, Muhammad replied that he couldn't. And uh, angel Gabriel said, read in the name of thy Lord who created man of blood, coagulated, read. The Lord is the most beneficent who taught by the pen, taught that which they knew not unto man. And uh, this was later on called the Night of Destiny. It was the beginning of Muhammad's prophetic career as messenger of God, Rasul Allah, or the prophet, Nabi. Uh, so this was really the first revelation and uh, later on, they came at different intervals, uh, sometimes quite frequently, sometimes uh, long periods of time would pass without any, but they continued until his death. And uh, later on, uh, these messages came in verbal form and were not accompanied by visions. Sometimes they were accompanied by physical symptoms uh, such as the hearing of bells ringing or a strong perspira perspiration even on, on a wintry day. Uh, sometimes they almost had the, uh, the signs of or the look of symptoms of epilepsy. 
but it is important to emphasize that most of his revelations were memorized by his uh, followers rather than written down, and uh, uh, early ones were very uh, randomly and uh, sometimes inconsistently remembered. But uh, later on in, in Mecca, uh, in, pardon me, in Medina, uh, they were uh, carefully recorded. So altogether, this was uh, an interesting process of revelation because uh, it was irregular, it was random. Sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, there were inconsistencies between earlier and later revelations, but as Muslim scholars freely acknowledge, uh, Allah is free to change his mind. Now, in, in Mecca, Muhammad uh, was not accepted as, as a true prophet of God, even though he went public with, with his uh, mission, and uh, his early followers were his wife and, uh, and uh, his adopted son and his servant. Uh, so, uh, his path to uh, acknowledge prophecy with powerful followers capable of exercising state power was rather slow. Uh, and he was uh, occasionally prone to, to depression, gripped by the sense of abandonment by, by God and, and the meaningless of life. But when he went public in, in uh, uh, 613, his teaching was still quite simple. Submission to absolutely powerful lord of uh, the world and absolutely just transcendent. The end of the world, the, the, the day of judgment, where all will be brought to life. The delights of sensual paradise, the torment of, of very painful self for the sinners. And... Uh, uh, they were received either by scorn or indifference by most Meccans. Uh, his close friend and lifelong companion, however, Abu Bakr, uh, became convinced and he was uh, an important addition to the small band of Muhammad's followers because he was both persuasive and a strong personality and also uh, ready to, to use force and violence if and, and when needed. Uh, by the time uh, uh, he had 39 followers, they spent their days together in the house of a young man uh, who was quite wealthy called al Arkham, And uh, uh, that's where the, uh, the rituals of Islamic prayer were developed, including the act of prostration, when uh, uh, the ground is touched with foreheads in acknowledgement of God's majesty. Uh, by the time that uh, there were 70 of them, uh, they felt that uh, uh, they should change location, that they were no longer secure in Mecca. And uh, even though the alleged uh, persecution of early Muslims uh, was later on greatly exaggerated by Islamic tradition, they felt compelled to leave Mecca for uh, the city of Medina, some 200 miles to the north, also along uh, the caravan trail.
And uh, the move to Medina was extremely important because uh, some people, uh, at that time the, the city was called Yathrib, later on it became Medina, the city of the Prophet. Uh, they came to Muhammad and asked him to mediate in uh, some of uh, the internal disputes uh, uh, in, in, in their city. And so when the early group of Muhajirun, uh, the 70 uh, migrants, came to Medina, uh, <laughs> Muhammad was all of a sudden able by mediating between uh, uh, the warring tribes to establish himself not only as a prophet but also as a secular ruler. Within a year and a half uh, and uh, um, using violence along the way, he fully established his power base and uh, uh, he was, uh, together with his followers, able to stage uh, raids against the Meccan caravans passing uh, by Medina. In 624, for instance, uh, he ambushed a caravan from Yemen at Nakla near Mecca, killed one man, took two prisoners, and they were ransomed, and uh, brought much loot to Medina. And uh, it must be emphasized that this attack took place in the holy month of Ramadan, which Arabian pagans respected as the month when no violence would be exerted in any form. But Muhammad said that uh, uh, Islam has completely rendered all uh, previous obligations obsolete. That uh, <clears throat> uh, from that point, revelations suitable to the needs of the moment suddenly started appearing, helping Muhammad augment his political and legal authority. Emboldened by uh, the early raid, the first successful one, uh, two months later he led 300 men and ambushed a big Meccan caravan returning from Syria. And uh, uh, even though uh, the Meccans count, uh, counted some 600 to 800 men, uh, the Muslims had the advantage of surprise and uh, quickly killed 40 uh, Meccans, took 60 prisoners, and uh, uh, it was at this point that a new trait in uh, Muhammad's character came to the fore, that uh, he was now prepared to take revenge on some of these pris prisoners who rejected him back before 622 and killed them. Uh, it was indeed unprecedented for a Quraysh to uh, kill members of his own tribe, but according to Muhammad, or rather to Allah, speaking through Muhammad, Islam had rent all bonds asunder. And uh, uh, at the same time, another important revelation came, the one that uh, promised Islamic warriors booty and ransom, uh, which were made both lawful and good. And I quote, you desire the lure of this world, and Allah desires for you the hereafter, and Allah is mighty wise. Now enjoy what you have wanted as lawful and good, 
and keep your duty to Allah. That's uh, Surah 69, uh, verse 30 to 37. So, if you are successful in fighting uh, on Prophet's orders in this world, you will enjoy all sorts of goods and loot is made lawful. But if you're killed, well, paradise awaits immediately. And uh, according to uh, al-Bukhari, uh, one of the collectors of Hadith, uh, Muhammad said that Allah guarantees he will admit the Mujahid, that is the fallen holy warriors, into paradise if he is killed, otherwise he will return him to his home safely with rewards and much booty. And it's really unique in the history of religions that uh, uh, so much attention is paid to uh, the loot and ransom in, uh, uh, in, in, in uh, war. There is another one. Allah promiseth you much booty that ye will capture and hath given you this in advance and hath withheld man's hand from you that it may be a token for the believers. And other gain which ye have not been able to achieve, Allah will compass it. Now that's uh, Surah 48 verses 20 and 21. So from the moment he established himself in Medina as both a secular ruler and uh, the prophet of new religion, Muhammad also changed both his character and the tone of his revelations. He becomes uncompromising, he becomes determined to achieve his objectives by violence, and he comes up with revelations that justify violence and that make uh, a fight in the path of Allah doubly rewarding. If you survive, you will be a rich man and uh, booty is made lawful to you. If you're killed, you go straight to paradise and all your sins are forgiven. I think this is a good place for us to to end the episode, Dr. Trifkovich. But before we do that, as you're discussing Ramadan and some of the inconsistencies, I wanted to know what what about the religion that was observed in this region made them both resistant to Muhammad, but also able later to be converted? What what were the the prerequisites, or rather the the existing beliefs that were that were in this region? Well, uh, they were not particularly consistent, and uh, it is important to. Remember that uh, 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 even literacy was rather rudimentary. Uh, from the remotest times, Mecca uh, used to be a place of pagan pilgrimage, and uh, uh, Arabs came from all over the peninsula to uh, bow down in the Temple of Kaaba, which was a black stone, probably uh, a meteorite said to have been brought down from heaven. And uh, the use of these stones falling from heaven was a perennial pagan favorite. Uh, in fact, we also have uh, reference to them in uh, uh, Acts 19:35, uh, "Quote that which has which was sent down from Zeus." Uh, 
Uh, as part of this pagan ritual, they were required to run around it seven times to kiss it before running a mile to a nearby dry well of Wadimina to throw stones at the devil. And it's interesting that even though Muhammad claimed that his faith was a complete break with pagan past, these uh, rituals were incorporated into uh, the uh, itinerary of the Hajj and are performed to this very day. So he did make a certain compromise with uh, the pagan tradition, especially when it comes to uh, the rituals to be performed in Mecca itself. But on the whole, each tribe had its chief deity and many had a small sanctuary devoted to it that was exempt from tribal conflict and cared by a family under the protection of neighboring tribe. And the especially important position of Muhammad's tribe, the Quraysh, was that they were the guardians of, of the Kaaba itself in, in Mecca. But these divinities personified, as is usual in polytheistic uh, faiths, uh, personified certain human traits and characters or certain natural phenomena. So, so and especially important was the moon. But uh, uh, there was no developed mythology. Now, their deities did not have a past or distinctive uh, biography like Zeus or Hera. One liked or feared them or placated them, but did not really know them. There were also uh, male or female jinns, uh, spiritual beings that could be benevolent or demonic, and they resided in stones and trees. And uh, we encounter actually jinns in uh, Muhammad's uh, tradition too. But uh, uh, the most uh, revered idol was Hubal. And uh, there were other two whose names were recorded in Islamic tradition were as Isaf and Nailah, lovers who were turned into stone as punishment for fornicating. And uh, the moon god in several variations was sometimes called Alilah, and the chief among all gods, shortened by frequency of usage to Allah. Now, as I say, we have scant record of these pagan times, and Muslims were not willing to preserve any remnants of pre-Islamic pagan traditions, except the rituals of, of the Hajj that I mentioned. But the frequency with which the crescent moon appears in pre-Islamic archaeological artifacts uh, uh, indicates that it had special status, and it was again, a, a very important symbol that was taken over by Islam. And finally, Allah was clearly an Arabic word, albeit borrowed from Aramaic. It corresponded to Babylonian Baal, although in one form or another the root is found in other Semitic languages. And uh, uh, whether Allah was actually the name for the moon god Hubal or not, Whatever it was, originally a proper name pointing to primitive monotheistic uh, uh, urges, uh, uh, today it is uh, regarded as purely Islamic, even though uh, Allah could be the word for God uh, denoting other deities than the creator of the world in the Islamic tradition.
Well, I think this is a, a good start for us, Dr. Trifkovich, and I, I suppose I should warn our, our listeners that this is probably going to be our mildest episode because we haven't really gotten into the true violence yet, have we? Oh, no, no. Uh, uh, these raids on the Meccan caravans were still, uh, how shall we put it tactfully, child's play to what was to come with uh, the expansion of Islam along uh, the African north coast to the west and along the Fertile Crescent to the Indian subcontinent. Well, that's what we'll be discussing in our next episode, the beginning of his so-called ministry. I, I use that word very much in quotes. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.